invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And we'll be considering verses 21, Luke chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 4, verse 15. And we'll be doing so in connection to the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is simply just a faithful summary of gospel truths that we believe are taught for us in Scripture. And specifically this uh, Sunday, we'll be thinking about uh, the origin and the destiny of evil. Uh, a question that, as we're going to say uh, more on later, um, has been a mystery uh, for mankind apart from God and his word. And yet, here in God's word, we find the mystery unraveled of the origin and also the destiny of evil. So uh, Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 21, this is the holy and inspired word of God. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mephat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mathathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsi, the son of Nagi, the son of Maath, the son of Mathathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and they were ended. He was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, I will, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So far from God's holy word. We're going to turn now uh, to the catechism in the back of the hymnal we sang from. To Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And that's on page 873. Last week we had considered uh, the misery of man as from Psalm 107. As the psalmist uh, surveys the children of man throughout the earth, wherever they may be found apart from the Lord. And he finds them in nothing but misery, right? Hungering and thirsting in the, waste, uh, in the desert waste. Um, out at sea at their wit's end, being tossed to and fro by the waves. Um, on, on death's bed, soon to die. And in dark prisons, and wherever man is found, he's found in misery. And so the Lord's Day uh, 3 now, as we think about this further, is going to ask the question, well, where did all of this come from? Uh, kind of a, a mystery that is, is being uh, asked and going to be sought out, the answer to it at least. Where does man's evil nature come from? Why is man in such mi- misery? Where does it come from? And And so we'll see that answered here in Lord's Day 3, and then we'll draw that also from Luke, uh, the passages from Luke that we had just read. So I'll read the question, we'll respond together with the three uh, answers there from Lord's Day 3. Question 6, did God create man so wicked and perverse? No, God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory, then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. The fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, Unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. So far from our catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to be considering this Lord's Day and this passage under the title, The Mystery of Evil Unraveled in a Genealogy. The Mystery of Evil Unraveled in a Genealogy. And by unraveled, I have two things in mind. When it comes to the mystery of evil. First, when you unravel the mystery of evil has to do with its origin. Where did evil come from? Why is it here in the world? Why is man in a state of such misery apart from the Lord? And so as we unravel the mystery of evil, we'll be thinking of its origin. But more than just unraveling its origin, uh, as we think about the mystery of evil, we also want to think about the unraveling of evil's power and ultimately its destiny. Not only where does evil come from, but what is evil's destiny? Where, where is it going? How can its power be broken and undone? And so those are kind of the two main ideas that we'll briefly think about in this catechism sermon here. And so first, as we unravel the mystery of evil in this genealogy, as we're going to see, uh, we first want to think about the origin of evil. Now, as you look at this genealogy in Luke chapter 3, It's interesting to compare it with the other genealogy given in the Gospels, namely in Matthew's Gospel in the opening of it. 
And if you were to look at Matthew's gospel, we don't have the time to read through it, all the names again. Um, but if you were to read through it, you'd recognize that when Matthew gives Jesus genealogy, uh, he works his way uh, from Abraham up to Jesus' day, right? So he begins with Abraham, moves to David, and then he moves to Christ. But it's interesting that Luke, when he gives his genealogy, begins with Jesus and then traces it backwards past Abraham all the way back to Adam, who is here spoken of as the son of God. And so they ask the question, why then in the midst, in between Jesus' baptism and then his wilderness temptations, does uh, Luke provide us with this genealogy? Why does Luke, in in between the baptism and the wilderness temptations, provide us with this genealogy tracing Jesus' line back to Adam, as he calls him there, the son of God? Well, you notice, for example, how uh, God um, identifies Jesus as his beloved son in uh, leading into the genealogy. Notice verse 21 of Luke chapter 3. As Jesus is baptized, the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then in the wilderness temptations, Satan comes to Jesus, bringing that very identity into question. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread and so on. And so in the midst of all of this, the main theme is Jesus' sonship. And specifically, as, Adam, as, as Luke begins to present Jesus' sonship to us, he presents it, and why he gives us this genealogy, he presents it in parallel to Adam. And his main point here is to tell us that Jesus has come as a kind of second Adam. That what Adam has brought upon mankind, Jesus has come to undo. Jesus has come to unravel. And so that's why John, uh, rather Luke presents and gives us this genealogy and why he wants to draw our attention back to Adam, who is spoken of as the son of God. Now, in what sense was Adam the son of God? Of course, he was not the eternal son of God um, in a divine sense, but he was the son of God in the sense that Adam imaged God. Adam was created as God's image bearer. We see this, for example, in Genesis chapter 5, where it brings together sonship and bearing his image. Genesis chapter 5. Notice what it says in the first three verses. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. And so we see here is the basic connection between sonship and image-bearing. Adam, as the image of God, one who was to reflect the glory of God throughout the earth, was referred to as the very son of God. And that God, when he created Adam in his image, created him good. He created him in true knowledge and in true righteousness and in true holiness. He created him as the catechism reminds us, right? So in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all of his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. And so 
Adam, originally, as the image of God, the Son of God, was created good and upright to enjoy his God and to glorify his God. But Adam, as one who was the image of God, was called then by God uh, to maintain the holiness of the Lord's realm, the Garden of Eden. And yet a serpent comes in and begins to tempt the woman whom the Lord had given uh, to the man. And rather than expelling the serpent or even crushing the serpent there on the spot for doubting and questioning God's word, Adam instead stands by and allows the serpent to continue to speak blasphemous and defiling words against the Lord. And as Eve is then uh, falls prey to this Satan's temptations, the serpent's temptations, she bites of the apple or the fruit that God had forbidden, gives some to Adam, he partakes as well. And in, that, in so doing, they broke the Lord's command and brought punishment of death upon themselves and upon all of their posterity. That is the history of mankind. And so as we begin to unravel the mystery of evil, it's, it's, it's contained in this genealogy because Jesus came to undo what, what Adam had brought upon the human race. Jesus came to undo the effects of the fall from Adam himself. It's why, again, Luke brings our minds back to him as we think about Jesus as the beloved son of God. Now, as we're going to see, triumphing where Adam had failed in our place for us to now deliver us from our sin and our misery. And so while the question of the origin of evil has been a mystery to mankind as they've sought to answer it apart from God's word, in many ways in our own day, the very notion of evil itself is, is questioned. Think of the great sort of prophet of our modern age, Friedrich Nietzsche, questioning the genealogy of evil and, um, and, and morals, himself saying that they're merely, ultimately, just human constructs that we've placed upon us. And that ultimately the superman, the ubermensch, as Nietzsche prophesies of one who would overcome these, these restraints put upon mankind. We see the dire effects of this in Nazi Germany. We see the effects of this throughout our own day as, at, at present as well. Where, where the, the, the one would come who would, who would be beyond good and evil. One who would come. And yet, in the midst of all of that, it's hard to really accept that in our hearts. And we ultimately always revert back to speaking of things as evil, things that hurt us, things that we don't like. And yet again, why we don't like them, where they come from, and where such evil comes from, has always again been a mystery. But in the midst of a simple genealogy, that mystery is unraveled. Where does sin come from? Where does evil come from? It came from the fall, and it came from the disobedience of our first parent, Adam. And so, we find then the mystery, the origin of evil unraveled, as we are brought back to think upon Adam and his fall. But secondly, right, as mankind now in Adam, as our covenant head, has fallen into sin and misery, now they're scattered apart from the Lord throughout the earth, hungering and thirsting in prison and in chains, on death's bed, at their wit's end, wherever they may be found, right, in a state of misery. The question is, who then can restore man back to God and back to comfort, back to happiness, back to enjoying God and knowing God? Who can put Humpty Dumpty back together again, right? 
And no matter how much man has tried to do so, to restore man, to educate man, to bring him back to a restored state, all attempts have fallen, all attempts have failed, and man is left hopeless in their misery. And yet again, Luke provides us with not only the origin of evil, but also the undoing of its power. And again, he does so by presenting us with Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who has come to undo what the first Adam has brought about. And three things in Luke signal this for us. Three things signal to us that Jesus is presented to us as another Adam, another representative of the human race, and one again who will undo what Adam has brought about. The first is Jesus' own baptism. Right? Jesus, as John the Baptist is, is um, baptizing in the Jordan, People are going out to him, and Jesus himself, without sin, without blemish, without any blame, without any guilt, without any sin of his own, comes to John to undergo his baptism. And we ask the question, well, why does Jesus undergo a baptism of repentance when he had nothing to repent of? He had no sin of his own to bear. We recognize that in Jesus' baptism, he is identifying himself with his people That in Jesus' baptism, he is baptized not for himself and for his own sake, but he's there baptized for his people. He undergoes a baptism of repentance as a substitute on behalf of his people in order that he might fulfill all righteousness. It's why Jesus undergoes John's baptism. And so as we look at the, the spotless Lamb of God, without any blemish being cleansed, we recognize that he's being cleansed and undergoing that. Because he's coming to undo what what Adam had brought upon the human race. To take the sins of man that are causing his misery and now to bear them upon himself. Jesus' baptism signals to us that he is here as our substitute. He is here in our place to redeem us and save us from a state of misery in which he enters into with us. In order that in him we might be brought to a state of comfort and of knowing the Lord in eternal happiness. Jesus' baptism is signaling to us that he is bringing about a new birth, a new creation, and he will take us from misery as he comes to us and meets us there, and he will bring us into the land of God, who bring us into comfort in him. The second thing that signals to us that Jesus is undoing what Adam had brought about is the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God throughout the Bible is a, is a creative agent of God, bringing about new creation. We see in the very beginning, right, as God uh, has um, spoke the world into existence, we, said we see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And that by the power of the Spirit, as God speaks, He orders His creation in those first six days. And so just as the Spirit was present in the first original creation, So the the Spirit now dwelling upon the Son of God signals to us a new creation. As he was there in the beginning, so now in the new beginning, the Spirit of God signals to us that Jesus Christ will be one who will bring about a new creation. It's why the Catechism says that we are left to ourselves totally corrupt, unable to save ourselves in, in complete misery. Unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. And so it gives us a a glimmer of hope 
And it shows us then that by the Spirit of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, now dwelling upon the Son of God, Jesus Christ, a new creation will come. The third thing that signals to us not only Jesus' baptism and the presence of the Holy Spirit, but also Jesus' triumph in the wilderness signals to us that he is undoing what the first Adam brought about. That he is taking us from misery into comfort in the presence of God. And again, we see this thirdly then in Jesus' triumph in the wilderness. Think about Adam again. In a luscious garden, you may eat of all of the trees except this one single tree. A garden in which the water was, uh, mist was coming up from the ground to water everything. A beautiful garden that signaled all around Adam the goodness of his God, the care of his father. Right? Adam had no reason to doubt God. And yet ser- the serpent again infiltrates that holy realm. He comes before Adam and Eve and tempts them with the single tree that God had forbidden. Now contrast a beautiful luscious garden with a wilderness, dead, lifeless, sand, heat. And there we find Jesus enduring the same trial that Adam had failed. You might think of Jesus' wilderness temptations as a kind of rerun of Eden. A new Adam comes, a new representative who might save his people from their sins. And now will, will he succeed where Adam failed? Now, Adam had everything going for him, right? Everything around him just screamed of the goodness of God. And here, Jesus is out in the wilderness with with nothing but barrenness and a wasteland, hungering and thirsting, not having eaten anything or drank for 40 days. Adam with with his belly full in a luscious garden, Jesus with his belly empty in the desert waste. And will Jesus succeed where Adam failed? That's exactly what we see him doing then. And so when Jesus goes into the wilderness, just like his baptism, so we recognize that he is going into the wilderness for us. That that he is enduring the serpent's temptations for us. So that in his success, in his triumph over Satan, so we find our triumph over Satan. Jesus tempted with bread, or to make stone, turn the stone into bread. He responds that man shall not live by bread alone. Tempted with uh, the kingdoms of the world, that he might, if only he would bow down to Satan. He says, you're to worship the Lord your God only, and him shall you serve. Brought to the temple, uh, Jesus is commanded to throw himself down, you know, that the angels might guard his feet, and Jesus answered, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, whereas Adam in the beginning did not crush the serpent who questioned God's word, and did not expel the serpent who brought doubt upon the the veracity and the truthfulness and the character of God's word, but here Jesus, now as a second Adam, brings God's word to the fore as a kind of sword to slay the serpent. And he brings it forth again in our place and for us. And this rerun of Eden, a rematch at the tree, you might call it, Jesus has succeeded. 
and he, and in, in, in his success, in his triumph over Satan, we have here the undoing of the power of evil. It, it begins now. So Jesus, he begins his ministry, begins healing, he begins speaking truth, uh, he begins restoring. All of these things signal that Jesus is bringing about a new creation. That now in him, the effects of the fall are being reversed and undone. So in Jesus' genealogy as the Son of God, he is undoing what the first son had brought about. And he is now taking a people, as he meets them in their misery, as he goes under the waters of repentance, as he heads into the wilderness as a wasteland, he is there in order that he might meet with his people, redeem them and bring them back into the presence of God, and with them bring about a new creation in which there is joy forevermore. So as we come to a conclusion here, right, we have thought about very briefly, much more could be said, the unraveling of the mystery of evil in this genealogy of Jesus. And we've seen how the origin is found as we look back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in their fall. We've also seen how uh, the power of evil is undone and unraveled in Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam, our Redeemer. And so the question to us is that are we, or are you rather, in Adam? Is he your representative? Or are you in Christ? In Adam there is nothing but death and misery. In Christ there is life and comfort. In Adam there is condemnation. In Jesus there is justification. And so all people, everybody sitting here, either identifies themselves with Adam in the fall, or you identify yourself by faith in Christ, in new life, in the new birth. And so as we think about the person of Jesus Christ, it's not a matter of just thinking about Christ as the second Adam, just to stir up some feelings of how God loves us. He does, of course, God has to love the world. He gave his only begotten son. But it's not a matter just to think of Jesus from afar, but to say, this is the Savior of the world. And if I am apart from him, and I'm away from him, then my lot in life is nothing but misery. And it's nothing but death and destruction. And therefore, I must run to Christ by faith. And Jesus thankfully says to come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, he will give you rest. He will provide you with true comfort for your soul. And so as we think about the origin and the undoing of evil, all of it reminds us to look to Christ and all of it speeds us on to run to him by faith, to rest in him and to seek none other outside of him. If you're in Adam, Christ invites you to come to him to find life and to find comfort. He is the son of God. He is the one who is undoing the power of evil He is our only hope, and he is the coming king. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for so loving this world that you sent your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you that Christ, our Lord, the very Son of God, has come in our place to represent us as his people. Father, we ask that we might look to him in moments of trial and temptation that we might find strength, and that we might find comfort. And so, Father, we pray that we would glorify his name 
as we run to him by faith and rest in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.